now listening to the E-Watchman Podcast with your host, Robert King. for listening. This is episode number 66, I believe, and this program was recorded uh, pretty much in the middle of December, coming up on the winter solstice. Well, first off, I want to thank all of you who have uh, made a pledge through the crowdfunding mechanism there. Uh, The last episode, I had... uh, ask for your support. I set a goal of $300 for the month, and (laughs) uh, we topped that out in one day. So uh, I upped this monthly goal to $900, and uh, I think we're about halfway there now, so I appreciate that. And of course, as I've mentioned, it it all goes to financing the Google pay-per-click thing. So uh, the Watchman's posts can be more visible and more accessible by people doing searches for information related to Jehovah's Witnesses. I was uh, so buoyed up by your your support that I went ahead and uh, raised the limit on my Google AdWords account to about uh, $30 per day. And, uh, of course, that averages out to $900 a month. It doesn't buy as many clicks as I had uh, originally stated. It actually costs about $2.71 to get a click for a keyword like Jehovah's Witnesses. I know, it's insane. Google has become a monster. But, you know, when people are looking for information and you can put your website right there in front of them... uh, you know, for some people, that means that they earn money. You know, people that are selling merchandise related to Jehovah's Witnesses, dating sites for Jehovah's Witnesses and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but I'm not selling anything, really. Although I am selling a book, I get no royalties for that. But anyway, I do thank you for your support. And keep in mind that when you make a pledge, it is reoccurring every month. So don't go overboard and then uh, you know, count the cost, in other words, as, as Jesus said. But if you can afford a dollar, uh, like I said, there's a couple of thousand listeners, 1,500 to 2,000 on a monthly average. And if you can afford a dollar, I'd appreciate it. So enough about that. Uh, as you know, the format of this program is I entertain questions. Some questions I get, I, I pop in the mailbag, and that appears on the Watchman's Post. And there's no real criteria for what constitutes, a, you know, a, a mailbag question as opposed to a podcast question. It's just, I just sort of play it by ear. Anyway, uh, I have a few questions. Some uh, were left over from the last podcast I didn't get to. And uh, I also have a... Um, a call-in question in the, in the voicemail. So uh, let's get to them. 
This questionnaire has a question that's based upon the August 15th, 2015 Watchtower that had an article entitled, Keep an Expectation. And uh, he cites part of a paragraph, uh, but I would like to uh, read the entire paragraph. It's paragraph seven in that article. It says, but how bad do you expect conditions to become before the Great Tribulation? For example, do you expect that there will be war in every country, no food on anyone's table, and illness in every household? Under those conditions, even skeptics would likely feel compelled to admit that the Bible, that Bible prophecy was undergoing fulfillment. However, Jesus said that most people would take no note of his presence, carrying on with life's normal activities until it is too late. Thus, the scriptures indicate that world conditions during the last days would not become so extreme that people would be forced to believe that the end is near. Okay, so uh, his comment is, uh, this makes me upset as it clearly waters down the conclusion of this wicked system and the presence of Christ. He says, however, can you please shed some light on the scriptures cited in Luke and 2 Peter? Because they, they were cited in the article, Luke chapter 17, 20, and uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. And, uh, well, first let me comment. I'd actually... Um, written an article on this after uh, after the Watchtower article came out. It's listed under uh, Watchtower Review, and it's entitled, Keep in Expectation, But of What? And I've written similar articles to try to get the point over that, uh, well, there's a lot of different ways to approach it, but Jesus said, when you see all of these things occurring, then you know that I am near at the door. So, have we seen all of these things? Have you personally seen any of these things? Because unless you live in Syria or uh, maybe in eastern Ukraine, uh, you personally have never seen a war. Even you know, the United States has been in a lot of wars, but they've always been fought somewhere else. Even World War I and II. <laughs> it was only the soldiers who saw the war, unless you lived in Europe. Uh, but even those people that saw the beginning of World War I, they're no longer with us. So there is no one living today who has seen all of these things. World War I is forgotten. Yet Jesus said, when you see all these things, and here we stand on the threshold of what many are saying is a third world war. You know, I used to seem like a crackpot 10 years ago, right? The first edition of Jehovah himself has become king. I tried to get the point across that there can be another world war that will fulfill this sign that Jesus foretold. And then you have the aspect of in Revelation where it's the horsemen of the apocalypse are unleashed and it says that they're given authority over a quarter of the earth, one-fourth. 
to kill with deadly plague and the sword and so forth. And of course, World War I and even the Spanish influenza combined laid low an appalling number, many millions, but it was only about 3%, nowhere near a quarter of the earth. So there's, there's a lot to be questioned about the Watchtower's entire uh, visible parousia thing. But that's not really what the questioner asked. He was asking me to, to comment specifically on uh, what Jesus said in the 17th chapter of, of Luke. And let me read that scripture. I'll, I'll open it up right now. Luke 17, 20 reads, On being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with striking observableness, nor will people say, See here, or there. For look, the kingdom of God is in your midst. And then I'd like to read verse 22 and 23. He said to his disciples, Days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. And people will say to you, See there or see here. Do not go out or chase after them. And then this is what he said also uh, in response to the disciples' question about the conclusion in Matthew 24. He said, For just as lightning flashes from one part of heaven to another part of heaven, so the Son of Man will be in his day. Okay, so the question is, what did Jesus mean when he said the kingdom of God is in your midst? And keep in mind, he was speaking to the Pharisees and he was speaking in the present tense, meaning the kingdom was there then in front of them. And of course, the way we understand that is that Jesus, being the king designate at that time, was walking among them. So the future king of God's kingdom was in their midst. But Jesus was obviously using that as a way to explain how he will be in the midst of his disciples at a future time. And that's what he was saying when you hear these uh, reports, here he is, see there, there, do not go out or chase after them. Because as Jesus said, his presence will be like the lightning that lights up one part of the sky clear to the other. And Jesus went on to explain in the 24th chapter of Matthew uh, where the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered. So Jesus' words are, are directed to his chosen ones. And he's telling them that you will not have to look for me you won't have to depend upon reports, sensational reports. Here he is in the inner chambers. Uh, no, he's out in the wilderness. You won't have to, to listen to any of that because Jesus will be in your midst. Jesus will walk among you. As I've pointed out, uh, the invisible parousia is a hoax. The parousia 
is when Jesus will literally come alongside his chosen ones, Jehovah's chosen ones, and reveal himself to them. And they will see him as he is. They won't have to die and uh, be resurrected into the spirit realm. The reason we know that is because the transfiguration of Christ was a foregleam of the presence. And how do we know that? Because Peter explained it when he said, you know, it was not by uh, artfully contrived false stories that we acquainted you with the power and the presence, parousia, of our Lord Jesus. He said, no, but it was by having been eyewitnesses to his magnificence. There having been eyewitnesses to the transfiguration, which itself was a foregleam of the parousia, indicates that the parousia will be visible, at least to the chosen ones. And that is why they won't have to depend upon someone else to tell them where he is. He will reveal himself to each chosen one. And if you're not a chosen one, well, <laughs> you won't see him. But in that sense, the kingdom of God will be in their midst. And it, of course, it will come against the backdrop of the sign that Jesus foretold. There is a difference, I would like to, to say, there is a distinction between the conclusion of the system and the parousia. The conclusion of the system is marked by war, food shortages, pestilence, great earthquakes, fearful signs from the heavens, as Jesus said. And the parousia will occur during that critical time. So the parousia, it's not really proper to say the parousia encompasses that entire period. It occurs during the conclusion, during the time of the end. First, the judgment comes and the wicked are expelled. Uh, the harvest is when the angels go out and first they uproot the weeds and then they gather the wheat into the storehouse and then the righteous will shine as brightly as the sun in the kingdom of their father. And that will occur after they have seen the Lord. Right? So, uh, as far as Second Peter, that is, uh, where, again, the Apostle Peter said that uh, during the last days there will come ridiculers with their ridicule saying, where is this promised presence of his? Why, from the days our forefathers fell asleep, all things have continued exactly as the same uh, down to this day. Well, is it that they are denying the, the sign of Christ's presence? Well, no. If you read on in that third chapter of Second Peter, he said, for this fact escapes their notice. What fact is that? Are they, The fact that 
you know, World War I occurred in 1914? Does that fact escape their notice that that has some sort of biblical significance? Hold on. Okay, I'm sorry. Um, I try to take every precaution to keep my dog, uh, <laughs> you know, muffled, but uh, she goes ballistic when someone knocks on the door of the mailman this game. So anyway, sorry for that interruption. No, but Peter went, was talking about what escapes their notice is the fact that there was a heavens from of old and an earth standing compactly out of water and in the midst of water by the word of God. That's the fact that escapes their notice. What's he saying? That people refuse to accept the fact that God had destroyed a world in the past. And so that affects their judgment now. That's what they mean by all things have continued exactly the same as from creation's beginning until now. Well, no, all things have not continued from creation's beginning until now. There was a cataclysm that Jehovah orchestrated when he caused the deluge. And uh, people refused to accept that. You know, I, I did a video um, quite a few years ago now, actually seven or eight years ago on Noah's flood, which has been the most viewed video on YouTube of mine. <laughs> you know, it's humorous. Sometimes people pop on there, they'll watch the thing and, and then they'll, you know, leave their comment. Oh, nonsense, rubbish. This is a mytholo mythology. There was no flood. You know what you're talking about. So uh, that fact escapes their notice. But Jehovah did destroy an ancient world. Jesus certainly believed that. The apostle believed it. And the heavens and the earth that exist now are stored up with fire and are reserved for the day of judgment. And that fact eludes people as well. But anyway, I, I'm certainly convinced that we're going to see war, food shortage, and famine on a scale that far exceeds anything that has occurred in the past. And Jehovah's Witnesses, for the most part, uh, will then realize that the Watchtower has deceived them as regards 1914. And that's when, unfortunately, as Jesus also foretold, many will be stumbled and will hate one another and betray one another. And here's the whole thing, friends. I mean, the Watchtower plays a very big role in the lives of Jehovah's Witnesses. There's no, no doubt about it. I mean, from, from the time when perhaps one of Jehovah's Witnesses first knocked on your door or if you were brought up in the truth, as they say, uh, the Watchtower has, has been central to it all. Their literature, their, you know, the conventions are a big part of the lives of Jehovah's Witnesses. And it's the society said this, the society said that. So the danger is, the danger is that we're following men. And the only way that Jehovah can determine whether we really have the faith, the true faith, is if he allows the watchtower to be discredited in a, in a way that seems as if uh, the, the truth is entirely discredited as well. And that's what 
the deluding influences out of it. Jehovah allows this man of lawlessness to perpetrate, and it's all tied to 1914. I won't speak any more on it now. I think I've uh, written and spoken on it enough <laughs> for you all to get the sense of it. Okay, let's consider our voicemail question now. Is it ever appropriate to refer to Jehovah as Jah in prayer or otherwise? Can we use the name Jah? Well, thank you very much for that question. As everyone knows, I'm sure, Jah is a shortened form of Jehovah, and it appears in the Bible in several dozen places, almost exclusively in the book of Psalms. So it is used in the form of praise Jah, you people, uh, several places, which, of course, also in the book of Revelation, which transliterated means hallelujah, hallelujah, praise Jah, you people. Uh, it also appears in the book of Isaiah, but it appears in connection with Jehovah. It refers to him as Jah, Jehovah. Is it appropriate to pray to Jah? Well, there is no recorded instance of anyone addressing God personally as Jah. It is used in the Psalms, as I mentioned. Those are songs. And in a song, sometimes you use, it's appropriate to use a shortened form of the word, of other words as well. Uh, but when addressing Jehovah directly, no, there is no instance in the Bible where someone said, Dear Jah. And so that is something to consider. God's name is Jehovah. Right? It's not Jah. The Bible doesn't say that the nation shall have to know that my name is Jah. And the Bible doesn't say, my name is Jah, that <laughs> says the Lord. No. It says, I am Jehovah, that is my name. But Jah is an appropriate shortened form. It just is very common with, with people to have a shortened form of their proper name. Like my name is Robert and people that are called Robert uh, often called Rob or Bob. By the way, don't, don't ever call me Bob, okay? <laughs> and, and many other names like that. You know, Thomas is Tom and... Jonathan is John, and on and on. You, you could cite many, many examples of that. And so Je Jehovah has a shortened form of his name, but it is just that, a shortened form of his proper name. So to be specific, I don't think it's proper to pray to him as Jah. But um, that's not to say that it would be disrespectful. I just, I'm telling you, I, there, there's no Bible precedent for it. And it's not a replacement for God's name. It's not a substitute alternative name. It's simply a shortened form of God's proper name. All right. Well, let's get to another writing question here. They say, I was hoping you could provide some clarity on a couple of scriptures relating to the resurrection of life and the resurrection of judgment. The scriptures in question are Daniel 12.2 and John 
I understand these scriptures to be talking about the same phenomenon. Now, I understand your view on the resurrection of judgment, it being like one being on parole. If the resurrection of judgment or parole pertains to those who practice vile things, as the scripture says, then doesn't that apply that those who practice good things and subsequently receive a resurrection of life will not be on judgment or parole? Otherwise, why the juxtaposition? To put things another way, why does John 5.29 especially seem to suggest two classes of resurrectees, a life class and a judgment class, if you will? My understanding has always been that everyone, meaning all those resurrected, good and bad, as well as those who survive Armageddon, will be subject to the final test after Satan is released from the abyss for a short period. That is to say, they will be on judgment. So again, why is the resurrection of life just opposed with the resurrection of judgment if those who receive a resurrection of life will still be on judgment anyway? I hope you can expound on this a little more than you have previously. Well, it's a long question, but I think my answer is going to be shorter than the question. <laughs> Let me just quote... Uh, Daniel 12, 2. I don't have it open here, so if I don't quote it verbatim, understand it's from memory, but Daniel said that then there will be those who are asleep in the dust of ground that will wake up, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting reproach or abhorrence. And then, of course, John 5, 29 says that there will be a resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous, the resurrection, those who practice vile things will receive a resurrection of judgment, and those who practice righteous things will receive a resurrection of life. So I certainly understand the premise of the question, but the answer is that Jesus is speaking about the end result at the end of the 1,000-year period of judgment. Because in God's view, the, the thousand years of judgment are as a day, right? One day with God is a thousand years and a thousand years as if a day. God is concerned about forever. Jesus died to give us everlasting life. So what if a person is resurrected during the thousand years and they have to be put back to death again? doesn't, you know, they might as well not have been born, really. So the resurrection of judgment is not necessarily talking about that 1,000-year period. It's talking about their adverse judgment at the end of the 1,000 years. So the resurrection is a resurrection to everlasting death or everlasting reproach, meaning they will be, have been given every opportunity by the loving God, to amend their ways, but they will refuse. And the end result of the resurrection is everlasting death or judgment. But those who practice good things in this life, righteous things, it will be easier for them, of course. They will, they've already demonstrated some love of God in this disadvantaged situation in this world under Satan's influence, and they will continue to progress 
And at the end of the thousand years, their resurrection will be a resurrection of life. End result. Right? That's what Daniel was contrasting. Two sorts of everlasting results. Everlasting life and everlasting abhorrence. And that will not be determined until the end of the 1,000 years. But what we do in this life does have a bearing upon how we will respond to the direction of the kingdom during the thousand years. And how people respond during the thousand years will have a bearing upon how they react when Satan is let loose for that short while at the end of the thousand years. I hope that answers your question. It's a very good question, and I appreciate it. Okay, uh, let's do one more here. And this is another rather long question, but I'm going to boil it down if I can. He says, uh, the Watchtower says that the, the seven stars in the hand of Jesus, described in the book of Revelation, represents the body of elders of the Christian congregation. But as you know, also, the stars may represent either angels or those who will shine as brightly as the sun in the kingdom. Um, but Jesus himself interprets that the seven stars represent angels of the seven congregations. So uh, his question is, and he, he, he wants an explanation because he says, it, he concludes this thing, I could see the Watchtower's explanation seems to be an error because the body of elders and the congregation do not behave like the stars in the hand of Jesus. Well, okay. So the, the Watchtower's reasoning is that Jesus, of course, commanded John to write this message and deliver it to the angel that was overseeing each of the seven congregations. And the Watchtower's reasoning is that an angel would not need to have a message delivered to them by a human in, in the form of John delivering this message. And that is perfect, perfectly reasonable. The seven congregations, of course, represent the totality of all of the anointed congregations that will exist during the time when Jesus arrives, the day of the Lord, as, as it's referred to in Revelation. Over those congregations is an angel. And again, the society's reasoning is that an angel can also mean a messenger. And so they reason that it could be a human messenger, the overseer of each of those congregations. My point is, it is not referring to elder bodies of any congregation. It's, it's, it's symbolic. For one thing, the seven congregations are symbolic. There is no congregation of Smyrna or Ephesus or Philadelphia in existence now, even though they did exist, of course, in the first century. Uh, but it really doesn't matter if it's representative of an anointed person that's supposedly overseeing these congregations or not. Because when you read the actual letters, Jesus said, let him who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to the congregations. So, as John was told at the very beginning, 
to write down these things that are presented in signs. These things are symbolic, and, but they are spiritual messages that those who have spiritual understanding are exhorted to pay attention to. And that's the whole point. We shouldn't expect that these letters were written to the body of elders of each congregation. That's, that's not the point. But uh, we are encouraged to give heed to the messages that Jesus presented therein. Okay, well, that's going to do it for episode number 66. Again, I thank you for your questions. Thank you for putting up with uh, my barking dog. And I've got some new microphone equipment here. I, I'm not really sure that I'm getting the sound quality that I would like, but, um, you know, I keep tweaking things and trying to make improvements. Sometimes it's a step backward, but again, thank you for listening. And may Jehovah bless your search for the truth. Yeah.